Backchat. Backchat. Politics and current affairs. Backchat. 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 Your alternative to talk back. Yes, indeed, you are listening to Backchat here on FBI Radio, your freshest wrap of news and current affairs. I'm Swetha Das. And I'm Shami Sivasubramanian. As always, we're going to give you the news you may not have heard on your airwaves. That's right. This week, we're reflecting on the Black Lives Matter movement through Indigenous deaths in custody. Our first guest is Joshua Krima, a Kalkadoon and Wanyi barrister at law to speak on this gap in our justice system. And a heads up, we've got a content warning on that one. After that, we're joined by Jenny Cow, a robo-debt recipient in the class action against the government's multi-million dollar, dollar fail, welfare failure. She'll be recounting her experience with the botch system over the past couple years. Oh, sorry about that. I think you can hear a bit of can feedback still, from my mic. Is it mine? <laughs> no, it's I think it's mine. It's mine. All right. It's definitely me. Uh, but we <laughs> want to hear from you guys. Have you been affected by robo-debt or do you know someone who's been affected? What are your thoughts on the whole bungle? Join in on the conversation and text us in on 0409945945 or tweet us at Backshed FBI. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. Over the last two weeks, the world has mourned George Floyd, an unarmed African-American who died after police pinned him down. In response to planned demonstrations here, Prime Minister Scott Morrison said Australia is not like the United States and was quoted reflecting on how wonderful a country we are in comparison. Mm, but the situation is not unique to America. There have been over 400 Indigenous deaths in custody since 1991 and not a single conviction. In fact, the last words of Dungati man, David Dungay Jr. in 2015, like George Floyd, where I can't breathe. Today we're joined by Joshua Creamer, a Wanyi and Kalkadoon man and barrister at law. He'll be explaining why Australia needs to hold up a mirror when it comes to processing the international Black Lives Movement. Hi Joshua, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me on. So in America, the high-profile deaths at the hands of police cause outrage across the globe. But why aren't the cases in Australia as public as they are there? Look, they are public, but I think as a country, it's all just become a bit routine for us. We hear another black death in custody. We see another family on television calling for justice. We we go to a coronial inquest and really not much changes. And, And like you say, we've seen that over 400 times since 1991. So... As a country, uh, everybody just sits back and says, oh, well, here we go again. Mm. So this week, the High Court found the deliberate use of tear gas in Darwin's Dondale Youth Detention Centre unlawful. We also saw an officer slam a 16-year-old Indigenous boy after a minor confrontation in Surrey Hills. Why isn't conflict diffusion training prioritised higher by cops? Look, for everybody, you know, I wrote an article this week on indigenousx.com.au and I encourage you to go in and read it. And basically it talked about my experience working on two matters, the uh, Murundji Dumaji death in Palm Island, worked on the class action, uh, and the death of Trevor King in 2018 in Townsville. And what I saw from the video footage, and I, I watched the video footage of Murundji in his cell, and he was picked up about... T- uh, t- he died about 11 o'clock um, on, on that morning, about 40 minutes before. He gets out of the police van. He hits a police officer. They engage in a struggle. Um, and a few minutes later, or moments later, he's dragged, his limp body is dragged into his cell. 
Yeah, the police just said, oh, we thought he was having a sleep. Uh, and a similar, something similar to Trevor King's death, he, uh, police officer jumped on his back, tackled him, held him down. Uh, I've seen the video footage of his eyes rolling back in his head and he's um, starting the phone from his mouth. His wife screamed, screaming there's something wrong with him and the police and the ambulance are just saying he's having a sleep. Now, we've just become too um, desensitised and the way we're treated by police and others as less than being human beings. Now, I'm not sure if your listeners would have heard this week there was a really big class action, Northern Territory Cattle Association. You remember when some footage aired on TV a few years ago about um, how animals were treated in a, a boat going over to overseas. Uh, the federal government jumped in straight away and, and, and stopped the whole system. You know, Aboriginal people are treated uh, on that uh, in that way um, on a on a daily basis, as that footage from the young boy in Sydney showed. Uh, and no action, no action at all from uh, politicians. And in fact, yeah, it was it was just disgusting to hear. Uh, one of the police uh, representatives simply say, oh, good cop having a bad day. Mm. I mean, how often do we have to hear this stuff? We'll be sure to share your article on all of our socials as well. Thank you for sharing that. What were some of the main recommendations from the 1991 Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody and have they been implemented? There's 339, and, and look, I've read the Royal Commission reports. I've read them a number of times. I've read the recommendations, and I read some of them again the other day. There's there's a real issue, though, with the Royal Commission, and people have to understand this. If all the uh, recommendations were implemented, it still wouldn't stop deaths in custody. The, the Royal Commission is... You've got to think about it in being two parts. The Royal Commission, um, the body of the report, actually focuses on why Aboriginal um, and Torres Strait Islander pe- people are incarcerated in such high numbers and basically comes to the conclusion that that's because of social, economic and historical factors. And we understand that. We understand how it affects our community. But the recommendations don't make recommendations about addressing those issues. So if you're never going to address those issues, there's always going to be a problem. What the recommendations do is say, okay, well, when someone's coming into uh, contact with uh, the justice system, these are the types of steps that need to be taken to limit the likelihood that they will die in custody or in the event of the death uh, these things need to occur things like uh, contacting family contact engaging actors uh, the, the first part of the recommendations deals with you know, developing a process for for the report uh, recommendations to be adopted and I mean people look out the, uh, the recommendation as custody being as a last resort and, and those things and saying well you know we haven't actually implemented all the recommendations but 70, 80, 80% of them have. Um, and actually, when you read police operation manuals, when you look at um, the way people are uh, man- managed in, in um, going into health system, etc., when they're in custody, you see that the recommendations actually have become part of operational procedures for a lot of these sectors. But like I said, even if we... And this is where people get it wrong because they haven't read the report and they haven't read the recommendations. If you read it, you'll understand that it's much more, we need to do much more than just implementing the recommendations. We need to address those issues. And this is really, I think, what the protests are about in America now. Mm. That that level of um, just extreme disadvantage that's been placed on us um, and, and you know, continues to create a lot of problems in the community and people are storming up against that. That's what's happening in the US. And until you address those core issues... We're going to see a lot, a lot of black people still going into custody, and you're going to continue to see a lot of deaths in custody. 
So the number of Aboriginal deaths in custody since those findings equal approximately one person each month for nearly three decades. And you've kind of mentioned it um, earlier, but can you tell us in a bit more detail why these figures are so high? So it does really go back to those core issues about our overrepresentation uh, in, in, custody, uh, in, in the justice system. And, and one of the issues that I really, which I think in my article you'll read it, um, which I think we need to focus on, is actually... Uh, how we investigate deaths in custody. I think what happens now is it's too much about we just go in and throw the arm over as an investigator or do a second-rate report for the coroner. The Royal Commission says that investigations into deaths in custody should be treated as a homicide, which effectively means a higher level of attention and detail and authority than what we see. And I think you might have said at the start of the show that we haven't seen prosecutions, and we haven't seen prosecutions because the quality of the investigation has been so poor. Uh, and so that's one of the areas I, I think we should focus on, because if we if we start to see um, proper investigations and then maybe criminal uh, repercussions, people might actually think differently about how they treat blackfellas uh, in, in custody. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Sweta and Shami. We're speaking with barrister Joshua Creamer, who's helping us dissect the treatment of Indigenous people whilst in custody. So, Joshua, what are your thoughts on uh, New South Wales police trying to cancel the Black Lives Matter protest this afternoon through the Supreme Court when a 5G protest exactly a week ago went ahead freely? Yeah, I don't understand. I've, I've been reading bits in the, in the media. I don't. I never I haven't read the court judgment, and I don't understand what all the facts are of the case. And a lawyer really likes to understand the facts to give an opinion. But you know, I do certainly understand um, how people would be feeling after that decision uh, when you see the NRL saying they can have crowds next week. Um, like you say, there's been protests recently, uh, and all of a sudden, and I believe this protest at some stage did uh, have an approval. Uh, and people would be feeling pretty upset now, um, given the, the energy and momentum that is around on this issue that they can't get out and advocate for something that's really important. Mm. So research from UTS found that a sample of 134 Indigenous deaths in custody um, had only two cases go to court and both were acquitted or had the indictments dropped. Why do you think that there is a lack of convictions in these cases? I think it's because investigators don't give a damn and they don't do a, they don't do a, a job um, that is to go in and investigate um, on the basis as if this is a homicide or as if a crime's occurred. I saw that in the Murundji Dormaji case. Um, all the facts demonstrate that there was in all probability a crime that occurred. Uh, not once did any of the police who were investigating that matter actually entertain that thought. Um, they just thought they were going to go in and prepare a report for the coroner. Uh, and it went, when it actually did come time to the trial, after all the issues that surrounded trying to get uh, the police officer to the court to, to trial, uh, there was no chance of a conviction because the quality of the investigation was so poor. And, and, and my proposal in my article is take the investigation away from the police, st- set up a specialist body uh, with federal authority uh, that can investigate crimes, uh, these, these deaths in custody, uh, and, and go in and do a really good job at it. So that, so that people actually understand the truth of what happened uh, and that in some instances uh, where there is a crime, these families can get justice. So in what way uh, does the legal system 
and the silence around these cases affect the families of these victims? Oh, it's been a part of our culture for a long time that, you know, we, we, we are very spiritual people and we need to go through a healing process. And, and I think by not having any transparency around these issues and not having clear findings and having, uh, you know, I, I sort of see it with the Trevor King death. No one's, I think there's only two of us outside the police who have actually ever seen this video. Um, and if the community's seen it, they'd be up in arms. Uh, and so, you know, people feel, our families feel as if uh, there's something more to what they're being told. And in some instances, there may be, some instances, they're not. Uh, and so that sort of lingering feeling really impacts our, fam- our family's ability to heal. When when your loved one is in the care of uh, you know, police or, 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 the, or the state, effectively, um, and they're not treated in a humane way, and that leads to their death, uh, of course you're going to feel uh, grieved and of course you're going to want to take action and see some justice. Joshua, thank you for your work and thank you so much for talking to us this morning. Thank you. Appreciate the time. Take care. That was Joshua Creamer, a Wanyi and Kolkadoon man and barrister at law on Indigenous deaths in custody in light of the Black Lives Matter resurgence. That's right. Now, don't turn that dial because next up we are speaking to Jenny Cow, a robo-debt recipient who's also part of the class action uh, case against the government. Mm. Some um, Aaron Brockovich stuff <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. Uh, we're going to go to a song. I'm just playing Dobby. I'm just going to keep playing Dobby. You can't stop me, Shami. No, I'm in I'm control right. of the You're the incorrigible. Uh, oh, my God. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is Peregrine by Dobby. Uh, don't go anywhere. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Back chat, your alternative to talk back. So this week, the government finally acknowledged their failure with RoboDebt, a highly flawed, automated crackdown on welfare. The scheme, introduced in 2016, used an inaccurate formula to identify overpayments and demand reimbursement. The bungle sparked a class action after the federal court ruled RoboDebt unlawful. Unlawful. I'm going to start all of that again. All right. (laughs) (laughs) The bungle sparked a class action after the federal court ruled robo-debt unlawful last year. Now, a total of $7 million will be given back to hundreds of thousands of Aussies, including our next guest, Jenny Cow. Hi there, Jenny. Hi. How's it going? Really well. Glad to have you on. Thank you. So, back in 2018, you received your very first automated statement. What did they supposedly pull you up on? Um, Well, I got a cold call in the middle of the day uh, while I was at work um, saying that I owed $4,524.63, saying that it was an overpayment from when I was receiving youth allowance in um, 2015 to 2017. So they had overpaid me, apparently. Oh, okay. So what went through your mind when you first found out you owed the money? Um, I was absolutely terrified mm. and also just convinced that it was my fault. Um, I thought maybe, like, I had done something wrong. Like, perhaps I, like, um, did my income reporting wrong. And I was just, like, so scared. It was, it was so bad. Yeah, and I think also with young people, I mean, mm. maybe I'm just going to speak for myself, but I don't I don't have that diligence to... I just assume, oh, well, the government's right. So I, I they, you know, I guess I have to pay. So did you end up paying that the, the fee? Yeah, so um, I basically, 
I went back to all my documents and actually tried to like work out if I actually owed that amount. Um, and I soon realized that I didn't, but it was so traumatizing every time I tried to call up Centrelink mm. um, that a friend actually helped me pay it off. So I paid off the full amount um, just around Christmas, which was really bad, yeah. awful. Mm. Hit to my savings there. Um, but yeah, I ended up paying it because I was just so scared. So you've touched on it, but what was the process like trying to contact Centrelink? Um, yeah, so basically when you do get something like an overpayment or what they claim is an overpayment, um, you can apply for a review by an authorised review officer, which is what I did. Um, so I wrote I wrote a, very, a sternly worded letter <laughs> and I sent it in because uh, apparently that's the best way to do it. Um, and I got it tracked and everything, and I, apparently they never got it because I called up multiple times after that requesting a review, and either I was put on hold for a really, really long time, or um, there was one time where I did get through to someone, and when I asked for a review, they uh, said that I had to be very sure this is what I wanted because um, my debt could actually go up if I asked for a review. Wow. wow. Well, so that's a bit of a threat there. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. So I've, I've heard that Centrelink and the police are criticised a lot for threatening recipients who challenge their robo-debts. So it sounds like you experienced something similar. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was definitely threatening. Um, I don't know, it was just it was really hard. The guy was so stern with me. And I, like, I ended up crying on the phone to him, like, being like, please, wow. please, sir. Um, yeah, it was, it was absolutely awful. They really try to do everything to dissuade you from following these issues up. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Sweta and Shami. We've got Jenny Cow, a robo-debt recipient, telling us about chasing Centrelink over false benefit overpayments. That's right. So early on, we asked you whether you've been affected by robo-debt, um, or if you have any thoughts on the system, but you can still um, text us in on 0409-945-945. And we got a couple of texts in. So someone has texted in. They said, it's not just about getting your money back. Robo-debt will have a lasting impact on people's lives in other ways. Uh, absolutely right, which sounds quite similar to what you were worried about, Jenny. And uh, Christina from Percival texted in and said... I haven't heard anything about what the government's doing to stop this from happening again. Seems like they're not doing enough. That is interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, last week the government waived outstanding debts and promised repayments. In your opinion, do you think these actions are enough? Um, definitely not. I mean, it is uh, a step in the right direction. People really should be paid back for these unlawful debts that they apparently owe um, and they pay back. Um, but, I mean, what really should happen is everyone who has received a robo-debt should be compensated materially and psychologically as well for, um, for what they've put us through. I mean, like, I was I was depressed and, and just mm. so anxious for, like, weeks, and then I got hit with another two debts the following year. And every time you get something like that, like, it just, it really ruins you because it's, I, I hate the fact that knowing that maybe I did something wrong, it just feels like they're punishing you for just trying to work while you're studying. So do you know any other people who are um, also 
been given a false um, overpayment from Centrelink or were you the only one kind of in your circle that was dealing with this issue? Um, at first, I, I was the only one dealing with this. Um, and I think back in 2018, there were there were a lot of articles being written about it, but for the most part, it was really kind of, people didn't really talk about it. Mm. Um, but I think this year I started like writing some tweets and I'd actually got so many DMs from a lot of friends actually who didn't realise that the debt they had received was a robo debt. So they were paying off. I had friends who said they were still paying off $9,000 debt to this day, um, not knowing that it was actually a mistake. Like what they had done was unlawful. So you're part of a class action against what's happening right now. Tell us about uh, tell us about how you got involved and what the proceedings have been like so far. Yeah, um, so I actually found uh, the ad from Gordon Legal just online because I think I must have been searching RoboDebt quite a lot. Um, <laughs> so I saw, yeah, just like a link on their website registered um, my interest. And this is when the class action first came out. Um, and since then, we've just kind of been getting um, emails and updates about it. I'm not quite sure how a class action works. Like, do I get to go to court? I would love that. <laughs> no idea. Um, so what are the timelines for it? What are you waiting on for? Um, so I think they have to do some further investigations and also, um, I guess, kind of like break down how everyone would be compensated. Um, because, you know, there have been like 2,000 de- deaths sorry, um, recorded since um, the robo-debt scheme yeah. uh, has been implemented. And I think they probably will have to kind of figure out how many of those deaths could be um, attributed to the robo-debt scheme, which I imagine would be quite a fair number. All right. Well, hey, Jenny, thanks so much for talking to us today. <laughs> that was Jenny Cow, one of hundreds of thousands of robo-debt recipients speaking on the government's automated welfare blunder. That's right. Well, that's all the time we've got for the show today. Thank you so much for listening. But another big thanks to our producers, Natalie Sekolovska, Eden Faithful, Millie Roberts, Vanessa Lim and Nicole Ilyogoyeva. And another huge thanks to our guests, Joshua Kramer and Jenny Cow. We'll catch you next week. But before we do, we're going to play a song. That is right. Right. This is by Kait. She's awesome. I saw her live um, a couple of years ago. Um, she's an incredible Melbourne artist, um, and this tune is stunning. Guys, enjoy your long weekend. This is Natural Woman.